I am so proud of the way that I faced my own fears about the end of life and began to think about what it is, what could be on the other side. So the part of my ministry at St. Luke's that I'm proudest of is, in fact, what I do for funerals, which brings me to the Requiem. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. Our guest is composer, choir director, and pianist Maria Ricky O'Brice from Amsterdam, New York. Maria wrote the musical Hearts of Fire, which deals with the Schenectady Massacre in the 1600s. Among her other major compositions are the Amsterdam Oratorio, Mother, I'm Here, and Home Again. Maria's latest work is Requiem, What Remains is Love. How did your Requiem come to be, Maria? Well, Bob, first of all, I want to say how lovely it is to speak with you. Thank you so much for for talking with me about this. So you mentioned in your introduction that I am indeed a choir director. I have been the music director at St. Luke's Roman Catholic Church on State Street in Schenectady for 25-plus years. It's it's kind of a well-known fact that those of us who are professional musicians often look for what's called a church gig because because you can count on it. (laughs) And so all of my life... I've I've had I've been in, I've been at a choir loft somewhere since honestly since I was age 12. So I got this job at St. Luke's in 1996. I instantly felt a connection to this place. But part of the job when you work at a Catholic church, part of the job as a musician is you must provide music for funerals. When I began at St. Luke's and I did a couple of funerals, I thought oh, this is not for me, because I was there high up in the loft, and down below were strangers to me, grieving and experiencing what is, for all of us, the loss of a loved one, one of the most important moments of our lives. I just felt I didn't have the sort of courageous kind of faith to muscle on through. I just felt an empathy to a fellow human being who I didn't know, and I really flubbed the funeral. I said to my my brand new boss, you know, I'd love to be here at St. Luke's, but I just, I, I'll love to do the masses and the weddings, but I, I'm not going to be able to do the funerals. And very understand, understandingly, but but absolutely forcefully, he said, well, then I, you can't be employed because it's part of the ministry. I muscled down, and gradually I found my way. And that long story is this the whole point of what I'm trying to tell you. I am so proud of the way that I faced my own fears about the end of life and began to think about what it is, what could be on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so the part of my ministry at St. Luke's that I'm proudest of is, in fact, what I do for funerals, which brings me to the Requiem. You know, we're all getting up there in age. You can't help but begin to ask more pithy questions of the world itself and of your own heart and mind. And I have witnessed so much at St. Luke's beyond just living my life as a human being Mm. that I felt the combination of my own questioning about faith, spirituality, the, the life of the soul, and my musicianship 
I felt called to write a requiem. And I'd like your listeners to understand a requiem is is a is a basically it's a mass for the dead. It's been around for centuries. Its original conception was in 1600. Um, you lived in the village, and say your father died. So you went to the local musician and said, "Here's fifty. Here's fifty pesos or whatever, or fifty cents, or whatever they could afford. I want a mass for my father. He's died, and that was a requiem mass." And then as the centuries marched on, and we got into the 18th and 19th centuries, all the greats began to think, hey, this is a requiem mass is an opportunity for a huge expanse of music, more oratorio-like. And hence, that was the creation of the gorgeous, brilliant requiems of, of Mozart and Brahms and Foray and all those, those wonder, wonderful masterpieces. So mm. that's, when we go to hear a requiem now, that's what we're hearing in the classical form. So mm-hmm. mine is, my requiem, I chose some parts of the traditional requiem mass that you and I set them to my own music, but they are melded with my own songs about life and death and where we might be going from here. I've got a kind of a basic question. You talk about you felt so far from the grieving mourners because you were up high and they were down on the on the floor or the floor below. Did you move your your organ keyboard or no? You're still in that position. With those old organ lofts, you know the way that you see what's going on downstairs? It's exactly like driving a car. You have a rearview mirror. So I'm facing, the best, I'm facing the front of the church looking out towards the parking lot, way up high. In fact, there's this stunning stained glass window that I look at. That's, it's, it's huge at St. Luke's. But then, then behind me, underneath me, um, and the altar, way down. St. Luke's has got the longest altar in Schenectady, apparently. But way down there at the grieving, but I can see what's going on through the mirror that's perched on top of the organ. Even though from that distance, I could hear. I, I, heard, the, I heard the weeping, mm. and I could observe the, the heads bent low. As a fellow human, you know, we have the, we're all in this together, and my empathy got the better of me. I just felt so sad. And then so I kind of, my voice broke, and, and, and I also, I felt I have no right. I don't know these people, but I couldn't help myself, <laughs> so, but I got over it. Could your requiem be used as a requiem mass? No, because, it, uh, because it, it's not an official, it would not absolutely bear a scrutiny as, as a proper, proper mass. It's missing some of the mass forms. In fact, I, I don't think it's, it's rarely done that, like if you, for example, Mozart's Requiem, that, that would not stand up to a, a funeral mm-hmm. mass. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, now, it's bec- it becomes, it's a thing on its own. It's its own animal. Requiem, what remains is love. Your Requiem, uh, you've uh, written or you've said it took you nine months to write and produce, and you did have an uh, artist grant. Uh, to to do the project? I got a grant from Saratoga Arts. They're our local funding arm of New York State Council Funding on the the Arts, of NISCA, as it's known. In my time, I've been very honored by them. Three times I received grants. The first was for the Amsterdam Oratorio. I didn't even... I didn't even realize there was a grant, but I took a chance. I saw something, and I sent it in, and oh, my goodness, it helps. 
And then my second artist grant was from for my my um, musical memoir Swan Song, and then finally yes for the Requiem. And you know what? I'll tell you, Bob. It really what it does for me is it buys me the time to sit and write. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing something else that hopefully would make me a spot of money, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm sitting here writing. So that's it's been extremely helpful. Listening uh, to uh, parts of the the Requiem, you have quite a, a chorus. It's not just you say you and a piano or you and an organ performing. You've got to enlist a lot of uh, people to sing. Yes, and again, just as I've been blessed by the New York State Council on the Arts, I have been mammothly blessed by the people, the artists, the singers in my life. You know, your listeners, I have a feeling, will remember the oratorio, and that was the first choral work that I, that I wrote. I was in Amsterdam, and I knew I wanted everyone in it to be an Amsterdamian. And I actually had a rule. They couldn't sing in it had they not spent 24 hours straight living in Amsterdam. Our guest is composer Maria Riccio Bryce. Let's listen to the finale from her Requiem. It's called Many Waters from Maria's new work, Requiem, What Remains is Love. The verse is sung by Tess McCarthy.
Our guest today is Maria Riccio Bryce. Her work uh, is called Requiem, What Remains is Love. We just heard a selection uh, from that. It had performances late last year at St. Luke's Roman Catholic Church in Schenectady. And you are now going to have what you call a mini tour of the Requiem coming up in May. Can you tell us about that? So I'm putting together a mini tour of the Requiem over Memorial Day weekend. And what the tour consists of is three separate performances at three different churches in the Capital District. So I'll just quickly tell you what they are. On, on Friday, May 26th, we will be performing the Requiem at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Albany on Hackett Boulevard. And on Saturday, May 27th, the Requiem will be sung at First Reformed Church on North Church Street, right in the stockade in Schenectady. And the last performance of the mini-tour will be in Amsterdam, that would be Sunday, May 28th at 3 p.m. at Trinity Lutheran Church, right on Guy Park Avenue. Uh, do you have CD? I know you have a CD versions of the Requiem. Do you have a place where you can buy them? At the moment, they're, if you're, they're being sold at Amsterdam Library. But if your listeners wanted a copy and wanted to get in touch with me directly, I could absolutely facilitate that. They could just email me. It's my full name, all lowercase, Maria Riccio Bryce at gmail.com. Maria Riccio Bryce, our guest on the Historian's Podcast. To continue producing the podcast, we depend on your contributions to our 2023 Fund Drive. It's easy to contribute online. You can find the link to our GoFundMe page on our homepage, bobcudmore.com, or donate by mail, make out a check to Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Our guest today, Maria Riccio Bryce. Her latest work is Requiem, What Remains is Love. Um, one of the questions I, I've heard you describe that I don't know if you answer it, uh, is you wonder as we approach the end of life, what happens to things? For example, you have this great singer, Tess McCarthy is her name. Like, what happens to the voice when, when we're gone? Bob, it's brilliant of you to extrapolate that from what I wrote, because yes, that, that question has dogged me for, for decades. And I finally wrote about it. You might have noticed in your program. So let me just start with your listeners. So yes, the first the opening number, I call it the overture of the Requiem, is sung by an opera diva. And I modeled it on one of my heroines, Maria Callas. Mm -hmm. Because as a musician, this is me speaking, as a musician, it's always troubled me. When I, I understand our mortality, I understand our bodies become ash. And that's the end of it. But in these incredibly gifted humans specifically a singer like Callus, with that voice that's so unearthly and so sublime, how can that just disintegrate to nothing? That question has, has pestered, well, more than pestered. It's really disturbed me. 
And so I finally thought to myself, I'm going to get to the bottom of it. And <laughs> in, in her aria, I answered it to the best of my ability. So what happens? Or you want to, we got to wait till we listen to it. I do believe, and it's, it's taken me all these years to actually be able to say what I believe. And it's interesting to me that I finally found my voice of truth through the music. I do believe in the soul. I do believe in eternity. And I believe, as I wrote, that that voice of hers is ringing through the universe. It's not a language that we hear as humans, mm. but it's a soaring, soaring aria of its own, unearthly, ethereal, and everlasting. Maria Ricky O'Brice uh, joins us. Uh, her latest work is Requiem, What Remains is Love. When we were setting up this uh, interview, uh, I think I know you might even have mentioned, well, it's the Historian's Podcast. There's you know, not a great deal of history in this, except maybe your history. And I, mean, I want to ask you about that as much as we have uh, time for. Uh, tell us about your early life growing up in Amsterdam. Yes, I would like to tell you just about this because I was thinking, expecting your call, which I'm so enjoying. I was nine years of age, the eldest of four girls, and my father, Peter Riccio, had it in mind that we must have piano lessons. I remember the day that he didn't let us know the piano arrived at my home. We lived on Northampton Road up a huge flight of stairs. And my sisters and I were playing on the street with our girlfriends when a truck pulled up that said Robert's Pianos on it. And uh. I can remember seeing these, these men heaving it up this impossible flight of stairs. Then I remember my father taking me and my sister Michaela to 72 Arnold Avenue, which was the home of Marion M. Rulison. We were taking lessons from her because my father had asked around who was the strictest piano teacher in Amsterdam, and her name always came up. She changed my life. As I became a piano teacher, you know when someone's got it. And I, looking back, I know she knew. And Bob, I can remember the feeling as a child of understanding a whole new language just beginning that she was introducing me to. And I can remember walking home one afternoon from Arnold Avenue. I was going to walk down uh, Byard Street, you know, where the, where the former high school is. So it's a long expanse. But as you're standing on the top there, you can see across the river. And as I remember the, the beautiful lift in my girlish heart as I pondered the lesson I had just spent with Marianne Rulison, what she had just shown me, and I remember feeling the unbelievable sense of understanding. And as I looked across the valley, I felt like the most blessed child in the world. If I may intrude on your story, it reminds me of my own family and my sister, Arlene, who was also musical. I was in kind of a different uh, sort of way. I was more of a difficult child, I think. But Arlene didn't go to Miss Rulison. She went to Miss Wilcox. Do you remember her? Oh, uh, I do. I would say she would be of the same school. <laughs> yes, she was. I think yes, Marion, uh -huh. uh, no, not Marion, uh, Ethel or Edna uh, Wilcox. And 
my my sister learned piano from her. And just as you describe getting the piano, I mean, my parents were factory workers, uh, and we lived in a um, early on in a four family house, and we had a flat. But somehow we were able to get a piano. In fact, more than one, because you know we'd have a piano for a while and. It was really overused because my father would pound away sometimes and maybe even I would and my sister especially. So we, we'd get another piano. I seem to recall we didn't buy it from a store. We bought it from people who were getting rid of an old piano. And I, I seem to recall the price was $25 to get Is the that right? You know, the and in the days when we were growing up, most homes had a piano. It was, it was, it was part of the family life. I mean, you know, really, these days, it's rare. And I'll tell you one thing, you can't give a piano away now. Is that, yes, well, that, that, that's true. But anyhow, you became known in junior high as the girl who plays the piano. Oh, did I ever. I loved it because there'd be an assembly and they'd buzz and say, well, Mary Riccio, please come to the auditorium because my job was to play the Star Spangled Banner before the start of the assembly. I was thrilled by that. And I played, I need to just speak about uh, Terry Jackson, who still sings in Amsterdam. She had just started teaching as Miss Krupa when I was in seventh grade. And I ended up being the accompanist for her seventh grade girls chorus. I honestly felt like I was on Broadway. I was thrilled. <laughs> and she helped me along. So many have. Bert DeRose and Marianne Rulison set me on my path. I must say my sister, uh, bless her heart, she persevered in this. I, I don't think my mother was, it seems funny because my mother went to college for a little while and wasn't able to make it there. But uh, Arlene was bound and determined she was going to go to college. And she went to uh, Potsdam and uh, studied music education and her career was as a music teacher up in Herkimer's in the elementary school and in her own way she was sort of was sort of like you I mean she was always putting on a show among uh, the, the different uh, children in the in the school unfortunately she did pass away you know over 20 years ago oh, uh, now but, young oh I'm sorry <laughs> but I mean she had her full career uh, in music but at any way you were doing you you were the piano girl and then you got your sisters the three of your your three sisters right involved in a singing group tell us about that i took it so seriously i mean they they went along but it wasn't at all they they just <laughs> followed me but i'm sure they were thrilled when it came to an end when i finally went off to college because i got us i used to come home from school as if i were a booking agent and call around and make dates for us to perform. I'm talking about DAR meetings, and, and I know we were on the telethon, the Jerry Lewis telethon every year, that kind of thing. But I, I, you know, I do believe the opening line of the Requiem, sung by, by the diva, is, I was born to sing. And I do believe that about my life. I've learned that so beautifully and fulsomely. I was born to sing, maybe not literally sing, but sing through the piano and my music and my acting, the theater, and now my, my composing. I was born to it, and I'm proud that I've honored that vocation that I believe was divinely handed to me. And you did go to college, and after that, you decided to go to England. How did that work out? Well, my friend, I didn't decide. I fell madly in love with a British fellow. 
<laughs> that was the decision. I, I had on my first season of summer stock at Weston Playhouse, and I had just turned 20, I met a charming British actor who was also in the Young young Actors Company. He had, this was Alan Bryce, the father of my children. We were married for many years. He had come to America to college and had, was following his dream of an actor. We just happened to end up in the same place. So right after my college graduation, I went to London and we were married and we became immediately very happy out-of-work actors. And then we we were we were lucky, but we were also determined. We began a small what was known in the, in English as a, in the in England as a fringe theater, which is sort of an off off Broadway theater. And we we put one together. We started one, and blow me down, it took off. It wow. really took off. Our theater became one of the leading fringe theaters of the 1970s. And we, we were famous. We thought we'd hit it big. And then Margaret Thatcher was elected. And amongst 40 other theaters, one very famous day in London. In fact, The Crown, that, that series that people are watching, mentioned that event cursorily, which I was thrilled to hear, that Thatcher just made this huge cut, and we lost our funding. So one thing or another, we decided we closed the theater. We had to, and we came back to the States. And as I've told you this before, I had the uncommon experience of returning to my own country in, a, in an immigrant fashion. We sold off all belongings, and we came with not much, much money, and my husband and I, my two elder boys, and I was pregnant with my third. And we landed back in Amsterdam. And that's from thence. All else sprang. <laughs> well, that's true. Because, I mean, that was really the, the start of the works that we've made mention of. For example, Hearts of Fire, about the Schenectady massacre in the 1600s and the Amsterdam Oratorio, and uh, Mother, I'm Here, the song about your mother. You know, I was distraught when I first landed back here. I made no, no secret of it. But as time went on, Oh my, I began to see the blessing that was revealed, and I truly did find my true voice, the voice that was born to sing, finally flowered right here. We've been speaking with composer, choral director, and pianist Maria Ricky O'Brien from Amsterdam, New York, creator of Requiem, What Remains is Love. Thanks for listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>